This is the Love That Album Compilation Edition, covering soundtracks, tribute albums, best ofs, box sets, and more. They warned you before you went out there There's always a chance to get restarted To a new world, new life start, but smarter The first time I ever saw Driving and Crying Live was... Sometime in 1996, at a little club in Detroit, uh, REM was playing at Michigan State uh, Auditorium. I had no interest in REM, but uh, Driving and Crying on the other hand. And Kevin Kenny, the singer, came back for the encore and he said, Song one, album one, side one, and he launched into Scarred But Smarter, which, if nothing else, is a statement of intent for a band that has lasted till today through ups and downs. They have an album that came out this year that's pretty good. But we're here to talk about their first four records. This is Eric. This is the final of my compilation editions. And uh, as I talked about Queensryche and King's X, I need to talk about Driving to Crying as being that band that maybe more than any other band... Even my beloved Jet Blackberries or Forbidden Dimension has stuck with me, has allowed me to grow, and maybe musically is the summation of everything that, that I enjoy and like. Outsiders who occasionally pop up to the un- from the underground, a little bit of punk rock, a little bit of the MC5, a little bit of country, a little bit of 70s country rock, a little bit of southern rock and a whole lot of attitude and socio-political discussion. Formed in Atlanta, 1985-86 era, 
driving and crying was the brainchild of a guy named Frank French and Milwaukee transplant Kevin Kenny, who had played in a punk band called The Prosecutors. He was a massive fan of bands like The Ramones and the MC5, as I mentioned earlier. By 86, 87, Driving and Crying was one of the major top club bands in Atlanta, and eventually they landed on Island Records, who re-released their first record, the one we're talking about to begin with here, Scarred But Smarter, followed by multiple records until the mid-90s when the band dropped off the label. But those first four records, and that's really what we're talking about, are the blueprint. They contain songs that you could have heard Bruce Springsteen or Johnny Cash singing, and they contain songs that you could have heard Soundgarden or Allison Chan's Wailing On. In fact, there is a really fascinating story to me about the fact that Driving and Crying fell right on that line between pop metal of the 1980s and alternative of the 1990s. And if you listen to their catalog, they definitely fall in that 90s alternative era. But because the labels that had been trying to push them in 1988, 89, 90 were fighting the Motley Crues of the world, they were perceived as being over that line. But you were never going to hear Warrant sing a song like the final track on Scarred But Smarter, Stand Up and Fight For It. This is much more of a kind of song that The Clash would have liked to have written. one of the ways I know that they're such a great band is that when I go to put together an episode like this, that I get caught up re-listening to the music and put in these musical interludes that I'm trying to give you, the listener, a sense of this band. It's just their breath is so large that it's hard to like cut things out and not go, oh, you gotta hear this part. You gotta hear that part. And that's why... I truly am coming to realize how great of a band Driving and Crying is, and especially was. How the importance of what they were saying goes along with the groove of the music and the energy, with the reflection and thoughtfulness, with the kind of acoustic balladry that you could see two guys with a 
hollow body guitars and open mic night singing. Or you could imagine a band standing in front of an audience of 40,000 screaming fans belting out. So let's move on to their next album. The almost as good, I don't know, maybe as good. I think that these first two records are really good. I would give them, I don't know, let's just say a B. Uh, and that's just to leave room for what I think is their best album, which I know I've talked about before. But solid, above-average records that more people should know and hear. And, yeah. A little more of this, and then we'll do some Whisper Times the Lion. And I'll talk to you then. Nineteen eighty-eight, and Drive and Crying released their second album, Whisper Tames the Lion. What's going on in America in nineteen eighty-eight? Well, Ronald Reagan is getting ready to leave office, making some people very happy, making a lot of other people not so happy. His vice president George Bush is about to take the presidency, making some people happy and a lot of people not happy. And Drive and Crying is a young band from the South trying to make it in a changing music landscape. Only they don't necessarily know that. What's going on is the rise of college rock. U2 is huge. R.E.M. is growing. Um, A lot of underground bands that are going to define the 90s are putting out their earliest recordings. And here's this band that fits in solidly with these 90s bands. It's making their second record. And it's On the underground, I guess. Um, I didn't hear about them until a couple years later. We'll get to that. But it's it's such an odd moment in time. And they put out this record. That's the first on a major label that was not originally recorded for an indie. And it's great. What else can I say? Let's listen to some tunes.
So this album goes from that Stooges ACDC Wheel of Powerhouse, which is one of my favorite tracks, to this kind of Doors Blues track, uh, Riding on the Soul Road, which is what I was just playing. It's another great song, you know, that, that image of peace signs on police cars. I mean, that's that's kind of right up there with a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac. I mean, it, is he invoking that the peace and love boomers have become the cops? Is he, you know, talking about a generational shift? I don't know. But it, it's there, and it's things that aren't being said in the mainstream pop music world of 1988. Uh, I mean... This is the year that Guns N' Roses is huge, and I'm not going to bag on Guns N' Roses there, especially in the early days, had some really interesting things going on in their music, sonically and lyrically, but Driving Crimes right there, to me, they are. Maybe they're a little more complex and a, and a little less bombastic, and definitely a lot less on the visual scale, but... They're, they're there at the top of what's going on, and, you know, uh, their next record, third record, is one I think is the best, Mystery Road, which we're going to move on to in a moment. I mean, that should have knocked it out of the park. And this is why. Yeah, I'm cutting right to the chase with this one. Uh, Straight to Hell off of Mystery Road. This is one of the great Gen X anthems. It's right up there with uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit or Black or Bastards of Young. This this is the experience of 16-year-olds in 1988, 1990, with a generation above us that didn't know what to do. We were the latchkey kids. We were disposable. There's a reason that Darius Rucker of Hootie and the Blowfish fame recorded this in a recent album and had a big hit with it. It's It touches something. People sing along to this. It's This is the hit that wasn't a hit. It didn't cross over. Uh, people in the underground know it. People that hang out in bars where it was on the jukebox know it. People that listen to country radio and heard Darius Rucker do it know it. But 1988, 1990... 
not so much outside of the circle of fans that would have been listening driving and crying I mean this is the crowd pleaser this is one of the songs they play as part of their encores and it just hits so many notes you know it's got a title that's straight from the clash it's got got that kind of classic country feel you know you could almost hear uh, Waylon Jennings or somebody covering this why didn't somebody get this in their hands there's a question for you why didn't somebody get a lot of this stuff in the hands of the great outlaw country guys but when it comes to this album this might be the big hit the big breakout song the singles everyone should know but it's nowhere near the you know the last great song on the album Let's check out some more. Kissing on the street today. Holding hands and promising there'd be no end. I saw two people hugging on the street today. As if there would not be another yesterday. But oh, how they must think it is to be a dog just like a kid. Living off my black and white and adding color to my life. So I gotta admit that Honeysuckle Blue is my favorite song off of this album, and it might be my favorite song on their whole catalog. It's got that wailing rock and roll guitar, it's got the kind of bluesy country underpinning, it's got, once again, that story of Generation X, the lost and the alone and the on the road, something about that on the road imagery that always works for me. This should have been, in my opinion, a massive hit. This should have been right up there with, you know, uh, R.E.M., whatever they were doing in 1989, and whatever U2 was doing in 1989. This should have been a transitional song, and yet it wasn't. They were still a great band that was growing and, you know, finding an audience regionally, 
but it would be their next album that would really put them into the uh, the the mainstream just for a minute and this is the song that put them in Starting with that great bombastic riff, kind of a mid-tempo vocal, the lyrics that are obliquely about an abusive parent that probably is also a nation. This this is this is what hit the radio in late 1990, in advance of the record, which came out in early 91. Yes, this is a 1991 record, which is kind of odd when you think about it. This is not necessarily what you think of for 91. In fact, the copyright date in here is 1990, but it came out, I know, the first week of 91. At any rate, this is a great song. No two ways about it. And it's a great record. I love the cover. I love the imagery. And it goes from this rocker to the next single, which is this. is yet another rock track which is fine this is build a fire and this was probably a bigger single than fly me courageous and the reason that we have all these rock tracks on this record is because somebody at island records has decided that they want the band to do away with the more country folk ballad stuff and given singer kevin kenny a solo record called mcdougall blues which i recommend checking out one wonders what would have happened if he had been allowed to integrate the songs from that record into this record. That could have been very interesting. Not that there's anything wrong with Fly Me Courageous. I think it's a solid record. I think it's, of the four, maybe the weakest. And I think it's the lack of those folky, country, ballady songs, the kind of slower tempo songs that help build a momentum. This is full, full blast, full forward rock record. And it's a hit. It's the biggest hit the band's ever going to have. And that's kind of where it all falls apart. They got two more records, one more on Island called Smoke that I'm actually a really big fan of. That's a straight-ahead rock and roll record. Comes out in 94. Comes out in the middle of the alternative feeding fest. Comes out right, I think, the same day that Mazzy Star or Belly 
one of those two, because I remember seeing those records on the shelf with them for the new releases, um, come out. And it's just out of sync with what's going on. And it's not because of anything the band did. It's because they weren't allowed to continue what they were doing on those first three records. I recommend all of their records. Some of them are a little easier and a little more accessible than others. Some of them are a little more patchy, but these first four are great. Actually, you know, f- the fifth and sixth records, Smoke, and um, and of course I'm for- totally forgetting the name of the next one, which is, of course I can't read it because it's sitting right here. Anyway, definitely worth taking a look. Oh, I'll tell you what it is, because uh-huh, I'm not not being as smart as I could be. Um, Wrapped in Sky, of course, Wrapped in Sky. That's a great record. That comes out in '95. And that's the end of the band on major labels. So, I guess what I want to say is, this this band is simply one of the greats, I think, and one of the great overlooked bands. And if there was any justice in the world, they'd be getting more accolades, and they'd be getting big reissues, and they'd be getting rediscovered. But maybe that will happen. Like I said, they're still out there touring, putting out new records. Uh, I have yet to hear a record that's bad by them. But these first four especially are the place to start. And part of it might be that these are my formative years. This reflects the time when I was 14 to 18 or whatever years old. And maybe it's that moment. And it reflects the, the soundtrack of my life, as you might say. So... I want to take a moment to thank you to Morris especially for allowing me to do these compilation episodes to have been involved with Love That Album for as many years as I have been. And while the compilation edition is going away, I am not. um, We've already talked about me being back on the main show. And who knows? I might find something that in time brings me back to do something else. We will see. Until then, everyone, look out for each other, and don't be afraid to check out some compilations. Don't be afraid to dig into the back catalogs, and don't be afraid just to put on something that somebody has recommended in the background two or three times to see if it grabs you. So until next time, thank you, and take care. Some reason I believed him. I said, What do you know about revolution? We're not.